So what I thought I'd talk about tonight is um, how this, how we, as the average person, Joe Blow, behave and what it, why it doesn't work and what the Buddha is trying to have us do differently that actually works. And when I say work, what we all are doing to try and make our life work in every scenario we're in is we want what the Buddha called R&R. We want rest and relief. We want to feel comfortable and at ease and everything's fine. That's what we all want somehow, in some way. Comfort and ease and inner peace. Um, so I'm going to describe three things that we tend to do. The untrained person, the normal, the worldling, um, tends to do. We do, um, one of the things we do, and it's more like a belief that we hold, is that somewhere over the rainbow, we will reach a state or a place or circumstances or something where everything will calm down and be just fine. Not just there's this wonderful place, dreamland. What we tend to do is we think that there is stability is the thing. We have this idea that when I just get over this particular little bump in the road, it'll all flatten out and be just kind of no more bumps. Right? Now, I used to think, in my mind's eye, I was always going down a road and there was a bend in the road and there were trees, so I couldn't see around the bend and it went to the left for some reason. But I never got around the bend, or as soon as I got around the bend, there was another bend. Like there's something else up ahead that I now still have to negotiate and then it'll be whatever it's, it's supposed to be. But it's up ahead all the time. So we look to the future and we expect some kind of something we don't really know what it is. Some of us are not very clear. We can't put a finger on it, but we know that we've got to get over something first. And then... So there's this tendency to expect um, something stable. A stable state. A fine, pleasant, comfortable, stable state that we will reach when we've paid the mortgage off, when we've got enough letters after our name, when the kids have left home, when we've moved, when we've, whatever, found Mr. Perfect, or whatever the hell it is. So we kind of have this habit to think that there's this, some sort of state that's a steadiness. We have this tendency of um, wanting security, absolutely. We're not secure. Life, in fact, isn't very secure. But we want it to be. We want it to be predictable, stable. We don't just want a stability for our, ourselves. We believe, this is all sort of part of the same thing, we, um, we make big, stable facts in our minds out of what isn't so. So, I am a such and such person, or this is so and so, or I, you know, we make statements, like major sweeping statements, I'm depressed, you know, I am a this type, you know, or she's so something. Well, this job is something. We, there's actually all that we have, in fact, are moments of experience, but we lump them together and describe them as though they're like a big, steady reality. This is what I'm trying to describe is our tendency, untrained, to solidify things. Solidify the future, solidify security, solidify everything. 
When we're in the midst of some kind of drama, some kind of emotional thing in me, that's our total reality. Our, our perception is that this is it. We're always surprised when it passes and we're just like, oh, I'm over that one. Where did that go? It's like, <laughs> surprise, surprise, it passed. But we somehow sort of, we just, we think this is it in, in the moment. As probably you know, even though I stopped Maureen from reading it yet again, um, I worked for 20 years as a midwife. And when women are going through their labor, they kind of, in their minds, think this is the, it for the rest of their life. It's just going to be relentless contractions, and that's, that's it. And you have to remind them it's going to end, you know. Like, we're going to be all in heaven in a little while. It's all going to be done. Because people are just like, oh, this is it, you know. You, that's because that's big and powerful, but we just get locked into these states. It's the way we perceive, untrained, that things are much more solid than they are. We ha I'm always reminding people, it's just about this moment. So people try and understand, we, we get these teachings, for example, we try and figure it out so we know how it is. As though it is something that then, once we get a handle of it, then we'll know and that's the way it is. The only thing that is about it is real. <laughs> In this moment, actually, whatever's happening. But that itself is a passing little, there are many, many, many moments. They pass very quickly. Things are nothing like as solid as we make them. This is a, a tendency the mind has. It wants solidity because it wants security in an unsecure state, in a vulnerable, changing reality. So we keep trying to shore it all up and settle it all down and calm it all out so that we are okay. It's not bad of us to do this. It's just that it goes against what's actually happening so it doesn't work. That's one thing we do. Another thing we do, and we have probably always done it, I'm sure it's how we've evolved so successfully and covered the planet with so many of us and survived, is we, in our experiencing, we notice, we're looking outside beyond ourselves at things. Chogran Trungpa, Chogyam Trungpa, the first Rinpoche to come from. Tibet to the West, spent a few years being educated in Oxford, very brilliant, the founder of the Shambhala meditation system, um, founder of Boulder, you know, Buddhist university, I'm sure a lot of you know, but anyway, was slightly crazy, rather radical, extraordinary, brilliant teacher. One of the things he said, he was giving a lecture at the, in the founding of Boulder those days, in the 70s. Um, and he said, uh, founding of Naropa, he was giving a lecture and he, he had a blackboard and he drew on the blackboard a square frame. He said, I'm drawing you a picture, he said. So he drew this and then he did this. I'll do it over here. A frame, this is a frame, a picture of something in a frame. And did you see? So what, what is it? And then he says, what, what did I draw? What is this? Seagull. <laughs> Anybody else? Hmm? Little squiggly lines. Little squiggly lines. One more. Okay, never mind. You don't have to say. He said so the answer that several people said was bird. 
meaning bird flying in. And he said, no, actually, I didn't draw a bird. I drew the sky, but there happened to be a bird flying in it. <laughs> because what we do is what Maureen did and whoever it was over here, squiggly line. We don't notice the space. We don't notice the process. We don't notice the matrix. We notice the individual discrete thing. Because if we get the right things, apparently we'll be happy. And if we get rid of the wrong ones, the scorpions and the tarantulas and the enemies and the poison, then we'll be okay. So we need to make sure by negotiation that we're getting the right stuff and not the wrong stuff. So we keep looking at these things so that we can manipulate and get the right ones. So because we believe that if we can do that, then we'll be okay. Because we want to be okay. We want R and R. So, but we do this. Unfortunately, what happens is that we have believed completely in that strategy. Completely. We invest our utter total reality in this strategy of getting the good and getting rid of the not so good. And anytime we're upset, we blame that there's something that we didn't want happening or there's something that we did want that's not happening or that's finished happening or something. We invest happiness in these objects. This is called objectification, objectifying things. We objectify things and we invest happiness in their presence or absence. We do this all day long, day in, day out. And then the third thing that we do, and this has all come together and you'll understand the sense of why I'm saying this, is these things that we are checking out all the time and manipulating to suit us, which is what I call having an agenda, are not what they seem. We believe that they will provide happiness or unhappiness, so we mess with them. But we actually believe that they are real. However, I have a thing here. What's this thing? It's got a little elastic band on the outside of it. I don't know if this is flashlight or if this is just an elastic band, but never mind. Uh-oh. What's that? So if I take that part of the flashlight out of the flashlight, is it is this is this flashlight? It's a sort of flashlight. It appears to be a flashlight, but it isn't really a flashlight because they're supposed to do something, like flashlight, for instance. <laughs> so it's a hollow kind of flashlight or a sort of meaningless kind of flashlight, definitely useless flashlight. Is What's that? Is that a flashlight? Like if you saw that sitting on a shelf somewhere, would you say, oh, look, there's a flashlight? I don't think so. It's a part of a flashlight, if you've figured that out, but it's actually just a bit of hollow plastic, really, with a button that slides up and down the side of it. What about this? Is that a flashlight? Not really. Some kind of component, something or other. What about this? If I can get this out. 
let's pretend I can get the lens out. There's a bulb and a lens. Is the bulb the flashlight? It's just a bulb, right? Is the lens a flashlight? It's just a piece of glass. But when you assemble all these little components together, very clever, these are all separate things. I mean, a battery is sort of a battery, but you could actually take this battery apart and you'd have coils and metal, and I think there's a weird liquid in it. I don't even know what's in there. But a bunch of different pieces, which when you put them together, you say battery, which means something. When you put battery inside plastic hollow container and screw in glass in round shape and press the button at a certain angle, you luckily get a flashlight. But it isn't really a flashlight. It's a name we've given to the assemblage of these components, yeah? So it's a convenient way of saying, go and get the flashlight. Rather, go and get that, that accumulation of black plastic with that shiny glass thing and that white button on the side of it, which has sort of got a battery in it. We call it a flashlight. But it's just a name of, it's a convenient way of communicating. It isn't ultimately that. We've made that thing, actually. It's not even a natural thing by putting it together and giving it a name. So, like, for instance, I didn't do this, but let's pretend. My son, whose birthday is coming up, I said, I'm giving you a car for your birthday. Let's pretend. Um, but it's in, it's in the workshop. Go ahead. So he goes and he opens the door of the workshop and there are five tires, two miles of electric cable, one and a half hides of leather, a bunch of screws and things. And he says, that's not a car. I said, but hey, it's actually a Jaguar if you put it together. Not a Jaguar. How do, what do you mean Jaguar? Jaguars don't look like a pile of nuts and bolts. Put them all together in a certain shape with one of those little lions on the front, and hey, presto, it's a jaguar. Or take a child. I did this recently to a little little child who lives in a community near where I live. Uh, it was the winter time, and uh, and she was just beginning to speak. She was two and a half, or you know, two and a half, three, and uh, she had these cute little Wellington boots on. Her name is Tisha, and I delivered her. And so I said, hi, Tisha. She sees me every few days. She knows who I am. She was being a little shy. She was at the age of hiding behind her mommy's skirts and peeking out. And so to encourage her out, and I said, hi, Tisha, nice boots. And she goes, <laughs> looks at her boots and looks at me and looks at her And then I just thought, God, there I am doing it. You're like making her think that those rubber things keeping her feet dry are boots, making them a reality. We do this all the time. One of the most obvious ones that it's, it isn't what it is at all, but we, we use this for our convention is, especially when you're teaching this to children, is you go outside and you look at the night sky and you say, see that? That's the Big Dipper. How ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, really, that's really ridiculous. Not even as ridiculous as that. I mean, it's just... A configuration of stars millions of miles apart, far away from each other, pretending to be a certain shape that somebody interpreted long ago as, actually in Britain we call it the plow, which is also pretty weird. But it, So what I'm talking about is this third thing we do. We solidify things, we objectify things, we conceptualize things. 
And the thing about, well, it's okay that we do these things, but we completely believe that this behavior that we do is reality. That's the problem. We need to do this to some extent. It's how we can say, yes, my car is the black rental Corolla out there. If we need to say that to somebody. So it's a way of moving through stuff. Fair enough. It's convenient. It's useful. It works. But we've invested it completely and we haven't seen really what's going on. What's really going on is different. There's a fluid flow of changing experiences completely beyond our control, random almost, not really, but feeling like that, that um, where each individual thing isn't really individual, it's part of something else. Did I tell any of you, I know some of you may have been here at different nights, but not on a Thursday night. Did I on a Thursday night tell you my Apple experience? So I'm going to tell you this little story because this is one of those insights that you get which describes this very thing. So this is one of those wow moments on a retreat. And it was a March month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. And well into the retreat, I was really very quiet and my mind was very calm. I'd done years of practice. I was pretty sensitive and very steady. Going down the line for breakfast in the serving room, the dining hall, at the end of which was a large bowl of fruit, bananas, oranges, and apples. I have a particular way of living. I've lived in the country, close to the earth, grown a lot of my own food, and I really like eating, and principally try and eat what is grown within 100 miles in season, and preferably without chemicals. That's my lifestyle as much as possible. And so I boycott eating apples, unless it's October, pretty much, September, October, November. Well, this was March, and these apples looked really good. So I thought, oh, I think I'll try this apple, even though I usually wouldn't eat an apple in March on principle. I took an apple, and I ate my breakfast, and then instead of slicing it up, I bit into this apple, because it really did look juicy, and I wanted to see how juicy it was. Not from the knife's point of view, but from my own mouth's point of view, and I bit into it. It was unbelievably juicy. And so I had this, in this a moment, this is what happened in my mind. Oh my God, this is so juicy. This is, I'm biting through and crushing thousands of little tiny sacks of juice that have been sitting inside these sacks of juice, inside this green, shiny, waxy skin in a box in a cooler for six months. It's still juicy. It's been there all this time. But it didn't, hasn't just been sitting there, and that was the beginning of the story. All this juice got sucked up through the sap, through the stem the trunk, the branches, and the twigs, and the stalk of this little apple to get inside there. And what's more, it didn't just come up from the tree. It came up into the tree from the ground, through the roots. And what's more, it didn't just come up from the ground. It went into the ground by falling as rain. And it didn't fall just as rain. It fell out of clouds, which were, in fact, an evaporation of the Pacific Ocean. And so right now, in my mouth, oh, my God, this is the Pacific Ocean. And then in the next second, I mean half second, this happened in a total flash, and this is going down my, my teeth, and it's going down, trickling down my throat, and it's going into my stomach, and it's going to become stomach acid, and it's going to be absorbed and become intracellular fluid, and it's going to become evaporated out as breath, or it's going to become blood, or it's going to become urine, and it's going to get peed out into the toilet, which will go down to the septic system, and then into the river, and back into the Pacific Ocean. And where in all this is apple? Where does it become heather? Where does it become pee? Does the pee stop being Heather when it leaves me or when it's still in the bladder? Like, where are we all in this? That was like, 
and you know it's true. We know it's true. We go to school and we're taught, you know, the rain evaporates and rains in the ground and the apples. But I experienced the fact that all, any one of those things, sap, cloud, Pacific Ocean, apple juice, blood, is just concept that we've put on a particular slice of this flow of fluid and believed it was a thing. And forget the fact that it's, it is an apple in the, the round, shiny thing full of crunchy juice. We've given it a name, but it's also a temporary part of a tree, which is part of the earth. It's all part of everything. And we forget that part. And we get all caught up in the relationship. But that's a nice apple. This is a sour apple. This apple is rotten. How dare you sell rotten apples? And we get into a fight with the store owner or something. We're forgetting the rest of it. We're seeing things out of their context, out of their matrix, out of the big container of life. And then we struggle with them because we want this and we don't want that. If we, if we stop for a minute and look really closely, we start seeing this interconnected big picture. And it isn't just about apples. It's about egos. It's about personalities. It's about myself. Like, what am I? So when we do this practice of looking at this moment's experience, what's actually happening rather than my conceptual version of, we start, it, things start dismembering themselves. It's like we start unpacking a concept, an object, and we start seeing all the components. We aren't trying to. We're not analyzing. We're not tr trying to figure it out. We're just looking. But as we look, we see. One of the teachers says it's like sticking your head behind the front and seeing the uh, strings pulling the puppets. You start seeing what makes it work. You start, it's like this starts happening. And you start seeing actually what goes into making this thing and how. And why am I the way I am? And why do I have this personality? And why do I have these particular trigger points in my personality that things bother me and other things just don't at all? And we start seeing all these components of who we are. We all as people and life and nature and it all starts revealing itself because we are looking. It's there already, but we start seeing it more clearly. So then we start to unpack what's the illusion. So Kalu Rinpoche, another of those Tibetan teachers, has died and been reborn as a tulku who's now about six, apparently, who's come to the West often and who actually had a, one of the three-year retreat sites right on Salt Spring Island, said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you realize you are nothing. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That's some of the craziest making language, you know, like Buddhism is so weird and somebody's not a Buddhist, I think, what are you talking about? But when you think about what I've just said, we live in the illusion and the appearance of things. We believe this is an apple, the concepts of things, the objects. We're, we're not really seeing how it's all hanging together and how it's all unfolding. There is a reality. We are this reality. When we see this, we see that the I, the idea of a personality or apple, isn't apple actually. It's just a name for a piece of the unfolding, the amazing display of unfolding. 
seeing that it's nothing by itself separate, you see that it's just part of everything. That's all. This pure mind shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. This mind is the Buddha. And there is no distinction between the Buddha and ordinary beings, except that ordinary beings are attached to forms. And this, and thus, seek Buddhahood outside of themselves in these forms. By this very seeking, they lose it. Luang Po, Chinese. The Buddha doesn't, isn't even a person's name. It's simply awake, awakeness. The Buddha had an awakening experience. Siddhartha had an awakening experience. Was walking down the road fairly soon after, radiating love and joy and bliss and R&R. And a person said, are you a normal person? You look pretty amazing. Are you like, are you a, a person? No, not a normal person. Are you a god? No, not a god. Well, what are you? I'm awake, was the answer. But I am awake. Awake is translated as Buddha. So this awakeness is the thing that we know we all would like. Because we know that's what R&R is. That's the feeling of freedom, of ease, of nibbana. Freedom from being trapped in the small form reality that we mostly have. But because we look for Buddhahood, for freedom, for awakeness in these forms, because we objectify and conceptualize everything, and we think that when we get a certain of them all lined up, our ducks in a row, then, well, we lose our Buddhahood because... It's the matrix. It isn't the, it isn't the bird in the sky. It's the whole thing. But we don't know how to look at that. It's like we look and see wrongly. Um, I often think of this. Um, there was a little craze there a few years ago for those sort of 3D images. You know, these funny little repetitive patterns. And if you just mess with your eyes a bit, suddenly you see a dinosaur or something. You know. My dentist has one on the ceiling. You know, so you lay there and you spend hours trying to focus your eyes. It's kind of like that. It's just perception. There's nothing different except that your perception shifts and you see the whole picture instead of the, just the pieces that you normally see. That's all freedom is. It's a shift, a little tiny shift of perception. When, you, when I see that apple isn't, it isn't what I thought it was at all. I've see it, seen it differently. It's life. It's earth. It's stardust. It's me. It's us. It's just a shift of perception. It's still got a waxy green thing called a skin on it. It's the same, but it isn't really the same. At least I can see more. So that's what happens by practice. And when we see more truly how things really are, we don't get so attached to having to rearrange it all to suit us because we realize we can't. We can somewhat. But Oftentimes we can't, or if we do, it'll just shift again because everything is so subject to change because there's so many forces on everything. So we start seeing the flow and the change, and in that we start seeing not just that it flows and changes, but that it flows and changes because other things keep changing to make it change. It doesn't just change randomly. It changes because something happens. 
the sun begins to go down and so the temperature fades and so the sweat stops happening, you know, whatever it is. It's all part of this dance. Not just in a moment, like I described the apple experience, but the whole, everything is, this time is moving by. Everything is endlessly shifting and changing. So when we start doing this unpacking of what appears to be a discrete object solid, we start seeing it isn't discrete, it's part of everything else. And it's changing along with everything else that's changing. So then we start seeing cause and effect. We start seeing how this causes this, and this causes this, and this causes this. And how everything causes everything and how we're all so interrelated. We start to then be discover we're actually much more of a big family than we thought we were. It isn't just a nice idea to think that you, know, you and your neighbor are the same and treat your neighbor like you'd like to be treated. It's all very moral and sounds fine, but actually it's the truth. We're much more alike than we're not. We're much more connected, but we forget the connection part because we see you as separate from me and I like this one and I, that one bugs me. And we aren't seeing how we're all. And then that's why when something dramatic happens in a community, some big upset happens, some earthquake happens, something happens, everyone pulls together because suddenly the, the sameness is much more important than the big thing that's just changed. But when everything's cruising along, we, we're all very separate, which is why upset brings people together. And then, you know, suddenly you're among friends when you were among strangers before. It's the weirdest thing. Some tra tragedies are, have loveliness in them. The bonding that happened, my mother went through the war. I was born in 49, but everything she said when I was a child would be before the war, da 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 da, during the war, da 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 da, after the war, da 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 da. That was a huge reference. And that they had all been through this dramatic, incredible time together. She'd lived in industrial northern England, and every night they were bombed. I mean, very strong bonding because of having gone through such a strong experience together. It takes us out of our smallness. Everything the Buddha teaches tries to take us out of our smallness. So he's not saying what's not so. He's just trying to have you see with a bigger perspective. And when we see with a bigger perspective, when we see much more the, the whole show, then we don't contend with it. We don't get stuck in manipulating it. We don't get attached to it having to be a certain way because we see the lawfulness of why it is the way it is. We see the causes and conditions of why things are. So we don't then get frustrated. How dare you do that? You know, how could you be that way? Well, of course you're that way. How could I be this way? How could I not be this way? So there's an opening and a, and a forgiving and an allowing and a an easiness that comes because there's more, there's more surrender. This doesn't mean not having any choices, not losing all discrimination, not able to, it means it's still necessary to make wise choices, but there isn't such a, you're not so invested in it, having to be a certain way. You still do the things you want to do and that you care about, but when they don't work, oh well, so somebody's run off with my cushion. Oh well, so it's just a cushion. So I can get another one and I even have a little temporary one with me because I like them. So it's okay instead of like, oh, that damn place, I'm never going to go there again. <laughs> Everyone's supposed to be living in the sea. I mean, it gets easy to get into that state, but it's like, you know what? It's what happens. It's easier. It's a, it's a freer way because we see this, this is what happens to things. 
So not to get too attached to concepts, to objects, to the solidifying of things. It's not that way. The picture is bigger, shiftier, less reliable, more mysterious, beyond us a lot. Scarier, more wonderful. We're less than we thought we were, which makes us part of everything. That'll do. So, thank you for listening. And uh, we have quite a few minutes, so I'd be delighted if anybody wants to discuss any of this or if this brings up any kind of questions, or please feel free to participate. I would like to say that since I started meditating, when I, when I have a plate of food in front of me, um, even if it's just a salad, you know, I, I think of the, the lettuce, how it got to my plate. You know, all the process that it, that it took to, to get there and all the hard labor for somebody to work the land. And, uh, and uh, even before that, too, you know, the, the people who decided to buy the land. Yes, to, right. So it just, it's so incredible. That That's right. It's <laughs> endless. Yes, and it also makes you appreciate uh, exactly. where you have more. Exactly. And that we're all connected somehow. Exactly. That's right. That's right. It's such a lovely thing, especially when we eat, because we so often don't notice when we're eating. We're yeah. busy somewhere else in our minds. Right. Yeah. 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 Pay attention. Yeah. That's nice. You know, Heather, concerning your pillow, now being connected, I feel so embarrassed, oh, and yeah. I feel so sad, and I feel so angry. Yeah. Isn't that? That's, I do that a lot. But uh-huh. I do. <laughs> How could this be? I mean, she's coming all this way. How could this be this happened? Well, they weren't here. They were over. I stashed them all over on a chair there because I was supposed to take them with me to go to San Jose yesterday. And then we were having lunch. We had a half-day practice period yesterday morning. Mm-hmm. And then we had lunch. And I put them over there and was having lunch and talking and interviews. And then I left. And my mindlessness, I left them all on a chair together. And so then other people have been here since yesterday lunchtime. And so they were sitting there and somebody had dried it out or whatever. I have no idea. And probably it will show up. Quite likely, but I won't be here. So why don't you have it and take it and see if you like it? (laughs) I don't have it. (laughs) Then you can have a whole different relationship with it. (laughs) Where are you going? I'm going to teach at Spirit Rock for a week. And then I'm going home. Are you coming back? No. This is it? Yeah. Oh my gosh. For now. She'll be back. I'll be back. Oh. But I don't know when. Next year, maybe? Now I'm going to cry. So you (laughs) (laughs) You know, what you said, though, is like we're all, all of it. I can't quote this well enough, but there's some. Beautiful, I don't even know who said this, but something about how can we um, basically blame and criticize the evil doers when evil runs right through everybody's heart as well as good. It's like, you know, we're all just examples of humanity which does sweet things and not so skillful things and greedy things and, and so on and so forth. Like, 
It's not like it's separate. No one is really separate. And so just take your feeling of, you know, say you said that embarrassment or whatever, and um, just see if you can have some friendly relationship with the fact that we do things as people sometimes that are not so skillful. Often because we don't realize the impact. You know, often it's ignorance. Sometimes it's really, really cruel and we know there's pe people deliberately hurting people. But oftentimes it's that they don't mean to hurt, but they're all caught up with their own frustration or their own whatever it may be, power trip. And so um, it's just really important it's, it, it, that we, f we, we will feel these things, the right and the wrong. And that's because we care. But not to... Um, it's just useful to take an experience that's not so pleasant, anyone, and practice with it, which means to say, oh, yeah, this is what happens when you're human. These are part of human things. And we all participate somehow in some way. That person isn't that different from me. I just do it a different way. So we, to learn to open to what's, what is. Because when we don't, we want it to be, just as I was, my whole talk was about, we would like just heaven and just rainbows and just perfection and everything and not the other. But that's not how it is. So all we can do is, is keep looking and seeing. Don't do it. Is keep looking and seeing. Is there struggle in me? Is there ease in me? Is there me wanting? Is there me not liking? Is there me judging? Is that free? Is that R&R or is that struggle? We can't change the fact that there's up and down. One of the talks I gave was about the eight vicissitudes, like everything's good and not good and in between all the time. That's beyond us. Our, the skill we have that Buddha is trying to teach us is instead of contending with the ups and downs and grabbing onto the ups and wishing the downs weren't downs, is looking at our attitude and seeing that we don't need to wish. It just is this way sometimes. It's our wishing, as it says in this little quote by the Wang Po, it's our wishing that gets in the way of our Buddhahood. So we... Would I reread it again? This pure mind shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. This mind is the Buddha, and there is no distinction between Buddha and ordinary beings, except that ordinary beings are attached to forms, and, this, and thus seek Buddhahood outside of themselves in these forms. By this very seeking, they lose it. So if we look at, oh, let, that shouldn't happen here, we don't want that to be happening, we're looking outside of ourselves at the form of behavior. So look instead at our attitude. If our attitude is one of contention, we're not happy. If our attitude is one of like, this is what happens sometimes, there's perfectly good reasons for almost everything, we're, we find peace. We don't find peace by that not happening, we find peace by being able to accommodate it. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about your heartache and how the meditation helped you through yeah. that? Yeah. Having a nice segue into that. Yeah. So um, my heartache 
was at the end of a relationship, you know, which I had hoped would be the relationship. And so I felt, um, I felt afraid that I was going to drown in the abyss of misery of heartbreak. And so I, I had enough experience from meditation to know that there's a kind of grounding and a calming. And so off I went. And my experience was that even though I wasn't listening to the instructions particularly or the talks or anything, it took a while to be able to let them in. By being able to be with myself and just be with my pain and just sit and be quiet, even though I was a lot of the time, majority of the time, rolling in the, oh, what if and maybe and what did I do wrong and how could I and how could he and all this, just being able to have the time to not have to deal with anything else and just to be settled without the stimulus of anything and just sitting quietly for hours a day with my own stuff. Um, the experience was that the drama, I got used to it, I began to accommodate to it, I began to able to go like, oh, this is so hard. I began to be kind to myself. And the experience was that instead of feeling like I was about to f- step off a cliff and fall into this abyss, there was this kind of murky, shadowy, unhappy part of my life over here. But I, I remember really clearly, and this is a long time ago, I remember really clearly feeling at some point in, in several days, oh right, my feet touched ground. It's almost like I was out of my, I was drowning, I was out of my depth, and suddenly my feet seemed to touch ground again. And there was solidity and it was okay. And there was now this problem in my life over to the side, like a dark, corner that I could go into and be miserable but it wasn't about to swallow me up it was just the effect of being with what was going on for myself and giving myself the time and the space to experience it not away, not running away not fighting not begging and pleading crying which I'd been through just being with it so because the setup of the retreat made me just be with myself and my stuff I then was able to let it in more and then it had that feeling of like calming, felt more grounded. I, and so, um, yeah. Is that helpful? I mean, I didn't do a lot. I just stayed with it. But I, it, it's like I didn't go off to distract myself. I went off to be with pain. And there I was with it. <clears throat> Yeah, I suppose most people would not want to do that, though. That's why most people don't meditate. Right. That's, that's why meditation, when, there's this teacher who lives in West Virginia. His name is Bhante Gunaratana. He's a Sri Lankan man, a monk. He wrote a book called Mindfulness in Plain English. It's a very good book. I highly recommend it. Um, in which he says that uh, meditation takes gumption. And what he, in the, that's actually one of the words that the Buddha used a lot in meditation is virya which is translated quite often as courage. Um, I like to think of the word as the word heart, which is where courage actually comes from, the French, the, the cur, the heart, um, meaning to care. Um, but another word I like for that very word is um, willingness, willingness to be with whatever is happening. And most people don't want to be with whatever is happening. They only want to be with the nice stuff. And we uh, avoid or blame or escape or shut down or, you know, feed, you know, with food or pick up the phone or something else when it's not pleasant. So, yes, it takes gumption to be with all of it, but that's the only way.
Chogram Trungpa again said um, something like, we want the, 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 as I call it, R&R tonight, um, of the sky. But the only way to get to that place is through the clouds. So somebody else, I don't know who, once said, we want to get to B and we're at A. The only way to get to B is to be completely at A. It's, it's like the stuff itself is how to be. If we look at the stuff itself and we see the struggle that we cause by our wishing, for instance, then there's some ease. But we don't look at ourselves. We look at these objects out there and chase them and get you know, mad at them. And, and it doesn't work, which is why we usually eventually come sooner or later amazing when we're younger that we come sooner to a spiritual path because we realize that that strategy is not enough. It sort of, sort of works, but not really. Anyway, my question is about curiosity. Yeah. And in trying to be present and maintaining a sense of curiosity, how does one do that? It seems like that just leads on to, you know, multiple trains of more thinking, thinking, mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good know. question. Very important question. So, um, it's, it's the kind of curiosity which is very simple. It's very direct. It's more like the kind of curiosity that the little child has. You know, if you take a toddler for a walk, you just don't get very far. You know, you've got like a few, three steps and like they notice something on the floor and they have to, you know, and they're like, watch that and they pull you back and then they look at it and they pick it up and they feel it and they often stick it in their mouth or whatever. And then you go another four steps and they turn around and they see something amazing. Because they have curiosity. Now they're not trying to figure stuff out because, and they have no reference for stuff yet because they have no experience. But it's all amazing and they're interested in it and that's colorful and that's, you know, what's that? And, and so that they're this always exploring, not to find answers, not to figure out, not to get into big commentary because they're not, their minds aren't yet so complicated. We're trying to be that kind of curious. It isn't analytical. It doesn't mean figure out and explain away and all that at all. It's much more immediate. So it's more like, for instance, you're blindfold and you play that game where somebody puts something in your hands and you have to figure out what it is. And so you're really interested in what it is and you you, you check the weight and the texture and does it have anything familiar about it or... There's an exploration. You're not off thinking elsewhere. You're very with the immediacy of this experience because in this game you're playing, you're trying to say, what is it? You're actually trying to find the the concept that we've given it. But the the attitude is that kind of like the way a blind person is trying to get to know something. Or, for instance, when you're with your beloved, you know, and you're, you're lovers together and you're looking at subtle wrinkles and you know, beautiful, this is an expressions, and you're not like, because this means so-and-so, when you're old, this is going to happen, to the, you know, you're not going off somewhere else, you're really engaged in this moment. That kind of curiosity, it's fresher, immediate, and it's, it's, it's to get to know more immediately the components, not what you then make of them. That's the opposite of meditation. The word meditation is meditation, the S disappeared over time. Station is from the Latin static, stationary, stand, still. Medi is middle, stand in the middle, 
of what's happening. Be fully in what's happening. Not removed off thinking, commenting, hoping, planning, scheming, blah, 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 and just this. It's that kind of curiosity, just really attentive. It's important. But it's very difficult because we, untrained, do the other all the time. And so that's why we give ourselves some simple, direct thing that's not so stimulating of thinking. So the breathing or the body, we can get into thoughts about this body. Oh, no, it feels like this. I'm never going to walk again, blah, blah, blah. But most of the time, it's more neutral than that. So there's just this breathing, moving, expanding, rib stuff. It's, so it's neutral enough not to stimulate a bunch of opinion. But it's very present. And everyone has a body that's breathing and that can be noticed in the immediate moment. So that's why the, the first foundation of, being, of doing this practice is things around the body, because they are so just here, not, and it's interesting. So when if pain is a really useful one, notice pain, and when we say explore pain, it doesn't think about what it means and why it's here and how come and it's not fair and all of that. It means, where is this pain? Where is it exactly? What is, is it throbbing? Is it tingling? Is it moving? Is it solid there is it a chronic thing or is it a what's going is it shifting what really is it what is it the martian is standing and saying what's it like to have that feeling in that part of your body how do you describe it so you're interested in it but not in the story that you add to it just it you've had a question um, <clears throat> i'm curious about thanks i'm curious about your comments on because um, it seems like you could spend a lifetime on this um, and kind of uncovering the truth or the truth or reality. But curiously about activism, social activism, and kind of your thoughts on that, yeah. not going nuts in that whole, because you could, yeah. it does me nuts, frankly, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm trying to not be driven crazy by a lot of what's going on in the world, but um, just your thoughts. It's really a huge, huge area, and, you know, it deserves itself. I mean, there are people whose whole life is how to do this with, you know, hold a spiritual dimension to this. It's too late at night to go into a lot of it, so I'll just be very succinct and say that um, I love this image. We, we care about our world. We care about justice. We care about suffering, you know, etc. We care about the environment. We care about our children and what they'll inherit these things are so huge and there's a lot that's not okay so of course we have this concern so um, the teaching of the Buddha which is trying to hold things in this big context are we want to care not this has nothing to do with not caring it's actually feeling the connection that we all have and so when we feel the connection, it all matters. The quality of air isn't just my experience. It's like it's going on and on and on. But when we get attached to having it be the way we'd like it to be, when we get into I want, I don't like, and we get invested in our happiness in having it be the way we think it should be or upset because it isn't, then we, we get small again. So what we try and do is 
care about it all, do the whatever we do, and everyone does different things, but every whatever recycling, we all do whatever it is. But with this image, which I love, which is an open palm, if we do what we do because we have to have it happen, it's, it's hanging on, or it's clinging, or it's goal orientation, or it's um, attached. Those are the language of the Buddha. To be attached to something which probably isn't going to work out the way I would like because of all these other forces, it's like holding on to a rope which is going through, which is called rope burn. So how to be a social activist without rope burn is to do everything we possibly can but with not hanging on to it because it may or may not come out that way because it's so big. So big. the trick is, if it's so big, do I just not bother and just numb out? That's the problem. No. In spiritually committed communities, people do a lot. But when it stays in the spiritual domain, it stays with this context of the big picture is beyond us. But we all are participants. So let's all do the best we can. And what will happen will happen. And then we aren't going to be frustrated when it doesn't work out the way we want. We're not going to get angry when people have another agenda or see it differently. It doesn't stop us from caring, but we don't care to the point that we get attached and then get into war about it. Blame, suffering, frustration, which is not helpful. It's more negativity, however righteous we might feel about it. So it's the, it's the caring anyway we usually either don't care or we care and hang on. So it's like, how can we care in the big context? So spirituality helps us hold. So that's why the Dalai Lama, for example, can say, my friend's the enemy. They are the enemy and their people have done terrible things to his fellow, what's the word, compatriots. And they are friends because we're all humans. And we struggle with all of our humanity and all these issues. So both together is possible. And, and he just has demonstrated that little sentence. So it's both together is the only way to hold that. And that's a very big arena and very challenging because it matters so much. So we start small and simple and we go with baby steps. Can I be okay with this particular my neighbor? You know, can I be okay with my headache? Can I be okay with this boss of mine? You know, can I actually care about it and do the best I can and know that there's more than I can possibly understand about it all? Time's going by, but I'm happy to hear from you. Right behind you, if you'd pass the mic right back. Just a quick question, um, tying in with what you just said. What happens when you're not okay with something and you, you cannot let go of the rope? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how we mostly are. So one of the, one of the I find, most helpful things is to um, forgive ourselves, is to look at, you know, that I am really attached to this. Actually, I am really stuck on this. This really does upset me. I'm a mere mortal, and I get upset by these things. The practice is to um, fr- be friendly with anything that's happening. And so when stuff's happening in me, that's not okay, can I say, this is so hard. 
instead of like, oh, I wish I weren't like, because then I'm just turning myself into another enemy for myself. The whole approach is that we're trying to learn is one of not um, judging, but being able to see what's really going on. What's going on is right now I'm at the limits of my ability here. And I can't, I, it's, I'd like to be wiser, but I'm not. I'm attached in this particular area. This really bothers me. And so can I see my attachment? So then look at your attachment and see how it's painful. And the more we can see, like my looking at my broken heart, it's really painful. The more we can see that, the more we can allow that to be. And then we, there's a kind of um, letting be of our, our limitations. And then there's a, there's, that's wise. There's wisdom in letting be. There's foolishness in resisting. Even our own imperfections. Especially our own imperfections. Because it's all we project out onto everything else. So we're constantly working with our stuff. But we don't want to turn our stuff into more enemy. That just makes more of it. So the way to lessen it is to say, oh, I'm really, I'm really losing it here. Wow. And can we hold that with some compassion? It's difficult when we, when we lose it. Is that helpful? Meta is the answer in one word. Friendliness to ourselves, you know. Friendliness to everyone, who, whatever they're doing. You know, we're all just people, right? We just all have these limits. Okay, we could go on happily. I'd happily go on, but I don't imagine you would. So we'll end our evening. Let's simply, before we stand up, dedicate our practice. I just love this as the end of the evening. So we do all this, think about this stuff because we care about our world. It's like a radical act. And so um, whatever understanding we get, whatever clarity that comes clear, whatever ability to be a little more with whatever's happening, to not hang on, this will benefit not just us because we aren't isolated. This will benefit our world. Any wisdom we gain will infect how we relate to any and everyone around us. So we do this practice knowing that it's of benefit to everyone, but we actually deliberately do it, keeping in mind this big picture for this whole world. People, friends, neighbors, family, bugs, birds, seagulls, whatever beings and creatures there are, may all beings be safe and protected from harm. May all beings be truly happy, deeply peaceful. May all beings be as well as it's possible to be. May all beings love and accept themselves completely, just as they are. And may ultimately all beings live with ease and well-being from complete understanding. Good night. See you somewhere sometime.